Hi, my name is Professor Joshua Lingle, and I'm teaching these next few sessions on the Quran and really uh, the background of the Quran in an internal and external uh, critique of the Quran. And so we want to go in this session about talking about what is the Quran, its revelation, and its compilations. And many Muslims begin with the Quran as the source of all knowledge. And that's a very challenging thing, especially if you're entering into evangelism with Muslims. Because Muslims are about ilm, or knowledge. And to them, knowledge is revealed by God. And so all knowledge uh, about what is true comes from the Quran. And it's because it was revealed, either through the Quran or through the prophet's example, the Islamic traditions, and so on. So the problem is that everything that you talk to Muslims about will be interpreted through the worldview of the Quran. So anything that agrees with the Quran is correct, but anything disagreeing with the Quran, well, it's to be fought against. And so when Christians minister uh, to Muslims on issues where the Quran speaks negatively, such as the deity of Jesus or uh, the sonship of Jesus Christ, salvation, and so on, we're immediately locked in a battle for truth. And that's why it's so important to know what Muslims think is true about the Quran and to understand what they're saying. What I believe is that every, everybody on the earth is on a religious pilgrimage. We're all trying to discover mainly who God is and why we're actually here. Sometimes those of us on our pilgrimage may shift our beliefs from something that we hold very strongly to another religion or to another faith. The reality is that hundreds of thousands of Muslims have become Christians over the last 20 years. So that even though Muslims may hold that the Quran is the foundation of all knowledge, that you cannot dispute it, you cannot uh, challenge it, the fact is that evangelism works. When the opportunity arises, then it's possible to lead Muslims to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to learn some interesting things about the Quran when you read it. You'll learn that Jews were turned into apes and pigs, uh, that slavery is actually permitted in Islam, murdering your enemies is okay. You'll learn that Alexander the Great was actually mm, a prophet of God in Islam, and the Holy Spirit is the angel Gabriel. There'll be some things that you agree with and some things that you don't, but as uh, Christians, we... Um, we, we, uh, there'll be many things that we don't believe. And uh, first, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what we'll be covering in the Quran as its form in Revelation. And second, we're going to be discussing how this Revelation was compiled into a book. And third, we're going to explore the actual contents of the Quran. And fourth and finally, we're going to address what Muslims may believe about the Quran. Now, the Quran is sacred. Uh, all Muslims adhere to it. It's sacrosanct. Uh, they believe it. They do not criticize it. It is the foundation for all they believe. They'll say a number of things, a number of things about their holy book. They will say that their Quran came straight down from heaven. In Arabic, the word is nazil or tanzil. It was sent directly down from heaven because the Quran was actually originally written on stone tablets in heaven. A prominent Muslim named Al-Zamakshari in Surah 85, uh, 20, uh, 22 set, refers to the eternal tablets as always existing as the mother of all books. And these tablets are considered to be the uh, individual books as preserved in heaven. Since the Quran is the speech or the words of Allah and is believed to be eternally existing on these stone tablets in heaven, it's holy and uncreated. And here's a, a quote from the Orthodox Muslim, Al-Zamakshari. Quote, The original text is the tablet corresponding to the words of Allah. No, it is a glorious Quran and a well-preserved tablet. This writing is designated the mother of all books because it represents the original in which the individual Qurans are preserved. They are taken from it for copying. It is of elevated rank among the books, for it is contrasted from them as a matchless miracle." End quote. So the Quran was sent down exactly as it was written in heaven and then delivered to Muhammad. 
in Sahih al-Bukhari, volume 1, Akbar 283, we read that the Quran is Muhammad's prophetic sign. As we've asked our Muslim friends how they define revelation, they've said that revelations are given by God through prophets and therefore to men. So there is always a, a vehicle by which it comes. So revelation comes to the Rasulullah or the messengers of God through Allah, uh, uh, through uh, the angel of, of Allah. And in Muhammad's case, it was the angel Gabriel. As I mentioned, the traditions tell us that Muhammad first received his revelation in the Quran in the mountains of Mecca at the cave of the Hira. And in the Muatta of Imam Malik, which is the earliest, uh, the earliest Muslim uh, law book, uh, it's written, we read how revelation actually came to Muhammad. Muhammad is quoted in the Islamic tradition as, quote, it was sent down like that. And then the angel Gabriel said to me, Ikra, recite, and I recited the surah. And the angel Gabriel said, it was sent down like that. This Quran was sent down to you in seven different ways. So recite from it whatever is easiest for you. So it was given to him in seven different ways. And this is the Arabic is called the Aruf. Uh, in Sahih al-Bukhari, and writes in volume 6 and number 513 of his Hadith, the Quran was revealed in seven different uh, modes. Allah's apostle said, Gabriel recited the Quran to me in one way, then I requested him to read it in another way, and continued asking him to recite it in other ways, and he recited it in several ways, till he ultimately recited it in seven different ways. Now what these forms contain is not actually clear. And what happened is this, that there was so much evidence throughout Islamic history that the verses were written in different ways that Islamic scholars were faced with a real problem. Some thought that there must be an existence of, well, multiple forms, and that in which Muhammad would receive these revelations, not just seven. So the actual contents of the Quran was unclear. It's also written by Imam Malik that Muhammad was asked, quote, how does this revelation come to you? And the Messenger of Allah said, Sometimes it comes to me like the ringing of a bell, and that's the hardest for me. And when it leaves me, I remember what has been said. And sometimes the angel appears to me in the likeness of a man and talks to me, and I remember what he says. Aisha, Muhammad's wife, added, I saw it coming down to him on an intensely cold day, and when it had left him, his forehead was dripping with sweat. So revelation came in dreams and like the buzzing of bees. At times Muhammad would foam at the mouth. At times he'd fall down in, in, in a stupor. Uh, at times uh, his legs would get so heavy that no one could pick him up. And sometimes an angel would appear to him in an angelic form. And at other times he was in the form of a human being. Now does this sound like divine revelation to you? Does it sound like something else? Perhaps demonic? perhaps epilepsy, we can't know, but we can venture to guess based on these different reports. Now, there are, there are differences of opinions amongst Muslim scholars uh, regarding when and where all the parts of the Quran were revealed and for what, uh, for what reason uh, these uh, revelations actually occurred. Now, parts of the Quran were revealed to Muhammad when he was in, number one, in Mecca, uh, number two, uh, when he was up in Medina after he hijred in 622, he migrated. Uh, in, thirdly, in an outlying area where he traveled outside or on his trading caravans and so on. Or even in Jerusalem, when he flew on the brock or the winged horse uh, to Jerusalem and flew back in the night journey in the mirage. Uh, or fifthly, in paradise, uh, according to the Mirage, he had actually gone to Jerusalem and gone up and led the prophets and Muslim prayers and so on, so he had been in paradise. Now, some parts of the revelations uh, in the form of chapters uh, are called surahs, and they're to be revealed all at once. Uh, other chapters are said to have been revealed to Muhammad just uh, a few verses at a time. Uh, other chapters are said to have been revealed with the help of thousands of angels. Um, 
certain verses are said to have been revealed more than one time. And finally, some revelations are said to have been abrogated or taken back from a law after the revelation. And this is one of the unique uh, features of the Quran, this doctrine or idea of abrogation. It teaches that a law can abrogate or replace earlier teachings in his scriptures by substituting something else in their place. Uh, the great Islamic scholar, uh, Arthur Jeffrey, he writes this, quote, The Quran is unique among sacred scriptures in teaching a doctrine of abrogation, according which later pronouncements of the prophet abrogate, declare null and void his earlier pronouncements. The importance of knowing which verse abrogated others has given rise to the, uh, the Quranic science known as Nasik al-Mansuk, the abrogators and the abrogated. So abrog uh, abrogation actually refers to something that had been previously been permitted but it has now become forbidden or vice versa. The way that Muslims will justify this is that they say that God changes a command with the, the desire to improve the situation for his worshipers. Uh, there's, there's a clear doctrine of abrogation uh, that exists uh, within the Quran, and it says that some of its earlier verses are canceled by these uh, later verses. For example, in Surah uh, chapter 2, Ayah 106, it says, quote, We do not abrogate a verse or let it be forgotten without bringing a better or similar one. Do you not know that Allah has power over all things? Also, in Surah 16, Ayah 101, it says, When we exchange a verse in place of another verse, Allah knows best what he is sending down. They say, you are not a forger but most of them have no understanding, end quote. So, for example, we'll discuss this later, but the sword verse, uh, which is Surah 9.5, is known for abrogating the most verses of all the Quran. In fact, this one verse, Surah 9.5, cancels out more than 100 verses within the Quran, so they're no longer used anymore. They're not applied, and Muslims uh, who understand this would not actually apply it uh, correctly interpreting the Quran. But the topic of abrogation is a quite complicated one, and amongst even Muslim theologians there has been much discussion over the last 1,300 years of which verses are replaced and which verses replace it. However, it's interesting that the number of verses that were considered uh, to be abrogated within the Quran increased dramatically between the 8th and the 11th centuries. Modern secular scholars, uh, especially Dr. John Wansborough from the University of London, the School of Oriental African Studies, actually where I studied, uh, he suggested that the abrogation or NASC emerged as an important tool to reconcile differences that emerged between the teachings of the Quran and the Islamic law or the fiqh. So there we have it. The revelation came to Muhammad according to Muslims. Uh, books which eternally uh, existed in stone tablets in heaven were revealed to Muhammad. Through the angel Gabriel, it was revealed in seven different ways. He experienced these strange uh, physical reactions, foaming at the mouth, sweating. He'd receive when he received these revelations of the Quran. Some verses would be replaced and others were changed later by Allah because they say Allah can change them and he can do so. Now, the revelation did not come just once or twice, but many times over the course of 25 years. And remember that there were two main periods in Muhammad's life, the Meccan period and the Medinan periods. Uh, the Meccan period was a, was a period of uh, basically peace and nonviolence, and the Medinan period uh, it, it, or in the Meccan period, there are shorter chapters or surahs. The themes in these chapters include the greatness of God, his transcendence, his omnipotence, and his omniscience. Uh, the Meccan surahs concentrate on how Muhammad's own people uh, uh, have been disobedient to Allah's commandments. Uh, he talks about the judgment to come and the destiny of all men to heaven or to hell. 
and there's very little uh, concerning Muhammad himself. Generally, as Jews or Christians, we would uh, accept much of what is written uh, during that period of revelation. Uh, the stories are mixed up. They, they tell wrong stories, which we'll talk about later. But in general, uh, the, the ideas that are present are similar to what we would hold within, within our scriptures. Now, in 622, when Muhammad had to leave Mecca, uh, he, uh, for Medina, we have what's called the Medinan period. And this is also the second period of Quran, where Quranic revelation begins. Uh, the chapters um, or surahs in the period are longer. We see a shift in the Quran. Uh, Muhammad is no longer speaking to his countrymen in Mecca. And he's generally addressing the Muslim community or what is called the Ummah. The chapters start with, quote, O you who truly believe, end quote. The concern in these revelations is, uh, is the, mainly the social ethics of the Muslim community and the conduct during campaigns and battles. Uh, he also talks about customs and religious issues dealing mainly with daily life at the time in Medina. And there's much material in the surahs which are justifications for very specific events or actions of Muhammad. Ultimately, during this Medinan period of revelation, Muhammad started receiving revelations about his newly established Islamic state. It's important to know that Muhammad did not write down the words of the Quran. Remember, the Muslims believed that he was illiterate. So at the time of his death, there was no Quran written. Rather, it was recited over 23 years to his followers who memorized the verses. So as Muhammad is actually waging battles and establishing a militant community, he's simultaneously receiving revelations that directly correlate with his circumstances and the revelations he's bringing. It's odd to me that a book that has eternally existed presenting a universal message of salvation would mimic one man's life in a 23-year period in the 6th and 7th century Arabia. The chronic revelations follow Muhammad's life, and this is really supposed to be a universal message of salvation meant for all mankind, but it mimics just one man's life. And that's something that you can ask your Muslim friends. What do they actually think about that? Now, how do we actually come to have the Quran today since Muhammad did not actually write it down? Well, according to Islamic traditions, the collection of the text of the Quran actually took place in three stages. Uh, number one, the first stage was during the life of Muhammad when his followers would memorize the revelations orally and record them. Well, they didn't have paper at that time. And so according to Islamic traditions, they would write them down on leaves or stones or even bones. Uh, if you go to Bukhari, volume 6, Akbar 509 and 510, you'll find that in those traditions, it actually records the whole compilation of the text of the Quran there under Zayed ibn Tabit and so on. Secondly, the second stage of collection was after Muhammad's death. Muhammad's companion, Abu Bakr, realized that the whole of the Quran had not been written down. And this was a major problem because those who had memorized the Quran are called Hafiz, and they were dying off in those battles that they were waging. The major battle where many of the Muslims were dying and the concern for preserving the text uh, was, uh, emerged was at a battle called Yamama, at the Battle of Yamama. Now, one tradition uh, says this, quote, Many of the companions of the Prophet of Allah had their own readings of the Quran, but they died, and their readings disappeared soon afterwards. End quote. Ibn Abi Dawood, Kitab al Masaif, page 83. Now, Abu Bakr was uh, now the leader of the Muslim community after Muhammad had died, and he realized that there was a great need to, uh, to gather together the Quran into one text. And so he asked uh, Zayd ibn Tabit, a very young scribe, uh, to begin the collection 
of these stones, these leaves, these bones, and to get the testimony, testimony of those who had actually memorized the other verses of the Quran. When Zayid ibn Tabit was told this, he was overwhelmed uh, by, by this idea, and it's recorded that he, that he said this, quote, By Allah, if they had ordered me to shift one of the mountains, it would not have been heavier for me than this ordering me to collect the Quran. Then I said to Abu Bakr, how will you do something which Allah's apostle, Muhammad, did not do? Abu Bakr replied, by Allah, it is a good project. End quote. Sahih Bukhari, volume 6, page 477. In the end, Zaid ibn Tabit did create a copy of the Quran. Bukhari writes uh, this report from Zaid ibn Tabit, quote, so I started looking for the Quran and collected it from what was written on palm leaf stalks, thin white stones, and also from those who knew it by heart. Sahih Bukhari, volume 6, page 478. And so there you have it. The recension of the Quran in 634. However, Zayd ibn Tabit wasn't the only one who wrote down the Quran. There was at least some 15 or 16 additional people who gathered together the verses and came up with their own versions of the Quran and copies of the Quran. Now, uh, what we know from the Hadith is that there was actually more than one codex. In fact, we can find some 15 or 16 different codices uh, of the Quran. Uh, if you go to Arthur Jeffrey's book, Materials for the History of the Quranic Text, published in 1937, you'll find that all the variations for these different codices recorded uh, in that book, and also John Burton's book on the collection of the Quran, you'll actually find English translations of those traditions in that book. And we also have several classes in the uh, Mission Muslim World University uh, that will go through those traditions uh, with you as well. But by Uthman's time, uh, after Abu Bakr, uh, a man by the name of the Caliph Uthman, so he was the third Caliph, so there was Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. Abu Bakr was the first Caliph from 632 to 634, the leader of the Muslims. Then from 634 to 644, it was uh, Omar who was in power. Then it was uh, Uthman at 644 to 656, and finally Ali from 656 to 661. So, uh, after Abu Bakr named, um, came, uh, was in power, uh, Uthman came into power. And by Uthman's time, there were some 15 different codices that existed. And uh, this one scholar, Arthur Jeffrey, studied uh, quote after quote of these different versions, these different Quranic uh, recensions that were left back in that time that were recorded in the Hadith. And just between these main codices, Ubay ibn Qab, ibn Masud, Abu Musa, and Zayd ibn Tabit. Arthur Jeffrey came up with some more than 15,000 variations within the text of the Quran. But Muslims uh, will say that these codices were the same, they're identical, and as we'll learn later, they'll say that not a letter, not a word, not a dot, a short vowel, a fatadama kasra, or any of the Quran is different than any Quran anywhere in the whole world. So we'll look at textual criticism in the courses with Dr. Garrett Puin and uh, Dr. Keith Small, and we'll actually cover textual criticism in this course as well when we get to the end of our lectures. So thirdly now enters into a third stage of compilation. So between uh, 635 and 652, uh, we have some 52, uh, 15 codices that were considered to be authoritative. authoritative. Uh, you can find these. Uh, for example, there's uh, Salim uh, had a codice. Uh, Omar uh, had a codice. He died in uh, 23 years uh, at Hijra. Uh, Umar, Ali, Hafsa, Abu Musal al-Ashari, uh, Aisha, uh, Um Salama, Abdullah ibn Umar, ibn Abbas, ibn al-Zubair, Ubayyad ibn Umar, and Anas ibn Malik. So the four that have these variations, according to the modern uh, scholar, Jeffrey, we discussed again, were Ubay ibn Qab, ibn Masud, Abu Musa, and Zayed ibn Tabit. So Uthman comes into and, and forms a committee. He borrows a copy from the Quran made by Abu Bakr from Muhammad's widow Hafsa. 
And the story goes that from the copy of the Quran, he created a, a standard codex which uh, was written out in the pure dialect of, the, of Muhammad's tribe, the Quraysh. And then he had all of these other 15 other versions of the Quran that I just quoted to you burnt. Now, that's, that's something that doesn't happen with the New Testament. Uh, here they destroy all these variations, and it's all recorded within the traditions of the Muslims. Now, Uthman had his copy of the Quran, which was not burned, and it was sent to the main Muslim cities that were, uh, they had conquered in that day. Uh, one copy going to Damascus, another copy going to Basra, Medina, and uh, the, the city of the prophet, and Baghdad. Remember that there were seven ways that the, the Quran was revealed to Muhammad. Well, Muslims say that the reason Uthman burned all the other copies was because he wanted there to be just one way that the Quran is read by all Muslims. So he wanted one standard copy. And this seems like a reasonable explanation, but many scholars believe that there must have existed uh, been significant uh, variations between, between the text uh, for Uthman and the other text in order to burn all of the copies. There must have been drastic uh, variations in the text. And as we will see that uh, in, in, in the end of this lecture, there were uh, many variations within the Quran in the Quranic manuscripts as we see that still exist today. Now, I've been using this material with great effect uh, with Muslims because with Muslims criticize our Bible and say that it's corrupted and there's many variances in it, many Christians, we just don't know how to respond to those questions. But what we do see is that these kinds of variations actually exist in the Quran, uh, that it's uh, collated, uh, the Quran has been collated and put into a book form. It should be complete, right? It should be the word of God, the word of Allah. It shouldn't be the same as, the, it should be the same as the stone tablets which are in heaven. So Uthman's copy of the Quran is the second recension of the Quran. And uh, the, after Abu Bakr, all modern editions of the Quran produced in the East are supposed to be the exact text reproductions of the Uthmanic text. They call it the Uthmanic recension of the Quranic text. So there's a belief held by many Muslims today that the Quran is actually perfect and uh, perfect in its content, perfect in its uh, preservation. And listen to what modern Muslims actually have to say about the Quran. Quote, And since the Quran is the last word of Allah, and the, word Muhammad, and the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his last messenger, it follows that no new scripture nor messenger is ever again to be sent down to mankind. It is essential that the last book remains intact, unchanged, at every stage, from the time of its revelation until the end of the world. End quote. The Sunnah in Islam, Habib al-Rahman Azami, page 10, UK Islamic Academy. Again, quote, while the books of the Old and New Testament, for example, were written and edited and compiled over long periods of time, sometimes centuries, the text of the Quran, once revelation had ceased, has remained the same to this day. Ulum uh, al-Quran, von Denfer, page 444. Oh, sorry, page 44. Again, quote, The Quran can, uh, contains the word of Allah. In it is preserved the divine revelation, unalloyed by human interpolation of any kind, unaffected, unaffected or uh, by any change or loss to the original. Towards, under, end quote. Uh, towards understanding Islam, Balana Sayyid al-Madudi, he was the creator of modern-day Pakistan, page 11, 1993. Um, another quote by Malana Maududi, quote, the Quran, the book he gave to mankind, exists in its original text. Listen, without a word, a syllable, nor even a letter having been changed. End quote. Towards understanding Islam, Maududi, page 58. Quote, there is complete, there's complete unanimity among Muslims that no alteration was ever made in the Holy Quran. 
and it exists today in the same way it was revealed to the Holy Prophet. Numerous verses of the Quran, as, uh, as well as traditions of the Holy Prophet, testify to these beliefs clearly, end quote. The Sunni and Shiite perspective of the Holy Quran, Dr. Ahmed Abdullah Salama, page 5. Quote, Not one letter has changed. This is Dr. Jamal Badawi, the, the uh, Muslim apologist uh, that travels to different universities challenging the Christian faith. He says, Not one letter has changed. The protection of the Quran as a book is an accurate prophecy, it has been fulfilled. Quote, in other words, two copies of the Quran, which were originally prepared in the time of the Caliph Uthman, are still available to us today. The, and their text and arrangements, their text and arrangements, because we're going to see later that the arrangements of the Quran have been changed when we look at the manuscript evidence. There are different variations of the chapter ordings of the Quran, actually. Uh, their text and their arrangements can be compared with anyone who, who cares to, with any other copy of the Quran, be it in print or handwriting, from any place or period of time, they will find them to be identical. Ulam uh, al-Quran, Von Denfer, page 64. So, do you believe that? Well, you can examine this Muslim belief from a number of different perspectives. And first, we can examine the Islamic historical traditions, which mention Quranic variants in their texts. Secondly, we can look at the Quranic manuscripts themselves to see if they are identical. Or thirdly, we can look at the historical evidence from archaeology, such as coins, or, for example, monuments, the Dome of the Rock, inscriptions, and so on. And we can look at other sources which would mention uh, quotations of the Quran at that time of the Quran. So let's begin with looking at the Islamic traditions, and what do they actually have to say whether the Quran is actually perfect? Are Muslims today correct that the Quran has never been changed, that not a letter, not a syllable has ever been altered? Well, uh, first, when we look at the Islamic history, we actually see that some verses were actually lost. Listen to the Muslim Dawood uh, when he writes in his Kitab al-Masayif on page 23. Quote, Many of the passages of the Quran that were sent down were known by those who died on the day of Yamamah, but they were not known by those who survived them, nor were they written down, nor had Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman by that time collected the Quran, nor were they found with even one person after them. Uh, secondly, too, we see that much of the Quran has actually disappeared. Al-Suyuti, very famous uh, writer on the Quran and his Al-Itkan all feel uh, ulam al Quran, page 524. It says, quote, It is reported from Ismail ibn Ibrahim, from Ayyub, from Nafi, from Ibn Umar, that's the Isnad, or the chain of transmitters, passed on the tradition, who said, Let none of you say, I have acquired the whole of the Quran. How does he know much, uh, what, uh, much of all of it is when much of the Quran has disappeared? Rather, let him say, I have acquired what has survived. End quote. Thirdly, we find that parts of the Quran have actually been uh, forgotten. Here we have two traditions which discuss this. Uh, a Muslim writes in his Hadith, uh, Sahih, al uh, Sahih Muslim, which is second in authority to the Quran, uh, second um, in authority to Sahih al-Bukhari, and that next to the Quran, uh, says, quote, We used to recite a surah which resembled in length and severity Sir al-Barat. I have, however, forgotten it, with the exception of this, which I remember out of it, quote, if there were two valleys full of riches for the son of Adam, he would long for a third valley, and nothing would fill the stomach of the son of Adam but dust. End quote. The second tradition from Sahih al-Bukhari says this, quote, Allah sent Muhammad with the truth and revealed the holy book to him, and among what was revealed was the verse of the Rajam. It was the stoning of married uh, persons, male and female, who commit adultery. And we did recite this verse and understood it and memorized it. All this apostle did carry out the punishment of stoning, and so did we after him. I am afraid that after a long time has passed, somebody will say, By Allah, we do not find the verse of Rajam stoning in Allah's book, and thus he'll go astray, uh, leaving behind an obligation which Allah has revealed. End quote. 
Sahih al-Bukhari, volume 8, Akbar 817, page 539. Again, parts of the Quran have been forgotten. But that's not all. Actually, it talks about some almost humorous uh, traditions where it says that parts of the Quran have also been eaten. Um, here's an interesting tradition. Um, it is reported from the, that a follower of Muhammad, Umar once was looking for the text of the, a specific verse in the Quran he vaguely remembered. Umar allegedly had a memory uh, of this uh, of this chronic verse and stoning as a, as a punishment for adultery. And so to his deep sorrow, he's discovered that the only person who had a recording of this verse had been killed in the battle of Yamama. So the verse was lost and he couldn't con uh, convince his colleagues to insert into the Quran because nobody else had actually came forward to support this tradition. And there was a requirement in the early Muslims that uh, there be two Muslims that actually support or had memorized a particular verse in order for it to be accepted as part of the Quran. And since the other person had died, the requirement wasn't met. And so um, Aisha uh, discusses, uh, discusses uh, Muhammad's favorite wife, said, to, um, said that there had to have been another verse written on a sheet of paper under the bed. And after Muhammad had died, a house animal actually came into the room and ate the sheet of paper Everyone in the house was busy with a funeral, and so it got eaten. So again, a very important verse uh, regarding the stoning and punishment for adultery was actually eaten by a domestic animal. Ibn Dawood, page 10, Sahih Bukhari, uh, volume 4, page 305, Sayyuti Itkan, volume 1, page 206, and Ibn Qutayba Shafi's Al-Kitab Al-Ulam, Volume 5, page 23. So according to the Sunni's own traditions, these are parts of the Quran that are missing and eaten by domestic animals. So is the, par is the Quran actually perfect? Well, according to the traditions, it seems that there are actually variances that did exist and discrepancies within the Muslim's own traditions. Now, these are only a few of the examples we find within the Islamic traditions. There are many, many books and volumes that we could actually share with you about these kinds of traditions. However, I just wanted to illustrate to you uh, what many people uh, and apologists say today, today about the Quran is not what their traditions actually say. Again, we've heard that not a single letter, not a word differs on the tablets in the Kitabullah in heaven that were sent down, they exist exactly the same as the eternal heavenly tablets, and all Qurans today are the same. They're identical. And so there should be no variances in word or letter or vowel or anything like that. So the question must be asked that if the Muslims largely hold that the Quran is indeed a perfect replica of those stone tablets in heaven, then why do they have all these early authoritative traditions saying otherwise? Admitting that verses have been lost, that they've been forgotten, that they're missing, abrogated, and even eaten. Several scholars would uh, say that when we take a look at Islamic history, we see that the doctrine of the perfection of the Quran was actually a later creation after the uh, writing down of these earlier traditions, which had all of these variations very clearly within the traditions and, as we see today, within the Quranic text itself. And this is uh, what modern Muslims believe. But Muslims around the time of Muhammad did not believe that the Quran was perfect in that sense, and there were variations, and very clearly so. So there was a much different debate going on amongst Muslims about the Quran early on. Now, the next thing I want to turn to is I want to turn to what's called the Shi'i and Sunni debate on the compilation of the Quran. And I think this is important because this would be a, a debate that actually separates out the 15%, 10 to 15% Shi'ite Muslims from the 80-85% Sunni Muslims on this issue of the Quran. Uh, the debate is what would later be called even by Muslims, the Sunni-Shi'ite debate on the compilation of the Quran. And... Uh, Many of us have heard that there are those, the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims. Well, it was a debate over, over the Quran, which partly defined these two Islamic sects. Prior to the collation of the Quran by Uthman, there are widely transmitted reports that Ali, uh, Muhammad's cousin, had put, to, uh, put all the parts of the Quran together after the death of Muhammad. But it was actually rejected 
Bayuthman as the official codex. Uh, an Iranian scholar explains that Ali's copy was perhaps uh, the most complete and authentic copy of the Quran. Uh, the reason that the copy was rejected was politically motivated. By controlling the Quran, uh, the Caliph Uthman could actually maintain control and power of the Islamic community. You see, Ali was the closest male relative to Muhammad. He was Muhammad's cousin. If his codex was accepted, it would make him the natural successor of Muhammad as the next ruler of the Muslim community. And this is where the Shiite sect in Islam emerges. You see, the Shiites believe that the successor to Muhammad should not have been merely a companion of Muhammad, uh, uh, of, or friends of Muhammad, but blood relatives such as Ali. So the Shiites accept a, a line of political and religious authority from Muhammad's descendants. Uh, the country of Iran, uh, for example, is run by Shiite religious rulers who followed Muhammad and a long line of his blood relatives to today. So many of the people will claim uh, their lineage back to Ali because he, has, he holds such a reverence within society. Either way, the traditions we just read show that the early Sunni history agreed that the Quran was not perfectly preserved in the Uthmanic recension. And that's a problem for 80-85% of the Muslims in the world, most Muslims that you'll meet in evangelism. In fact, in the 10th century, a prominent Muslim theologian by the name of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, uh, he was part of one of the four uh, schools of law, uh, Hanbali, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, the Hanbalis, uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal was the imam or, or the religious scholar of that Sharia, um, that Sharia school. Um, in, the, in the 8th and 9th century. Now, he held firm to the belief that the codex of the Quran was actually perfect. And for Ahmed ibn Hanbal, uh, admitting that parts of the Quran were missed, uh, created problems uh, for the Sunnis when they were confronted by the Shiites. The Shiites would say, well, the Uthmanic text is not complete, and they used to argue that Ali's text was superior, uh, the Iranian scholar, once again, uh, uh, Hussein Modresi, uh, uh, explains such as the result of the Sunni scholars began to distance themselves from the claims that the Quran was not perfect and instead began to emphasize this idea of the incorruptibility of the Quran. Sunnis uh, later forbid quoting traditions admitting that parts of the Quran were missing, even those Reports came from the most reliable uh, authorities uh, in Bukhari and Muslim and Suyuti and others, Dawood. So we see an evolution in Islamic theology that the Quran was perfect when in fact it wasn't. So we've explained the stages of revelation and compilation of the Quran. And we've mentioned uh, a little about the variance in its early text. But what about the Quran as we have it today? How did it actually come to be? Now, you may be surprised that the Quran today is not based on the manuscripts of the Caliph Uthman. It's not a part of the Uthmanic recension of the Quran. It's not even based on Ali's version of the Quran. Remember how, um, how I mentioned uh, that the Quran was revealed to Muhammad in seven different ways. Well, over that time, uh, uh, that was a way that Muslims could explain the different ways that the Quran was recited. People who memorized the Quran would recite it in different ways. And though the Quran was written down, through history there was a heavy emphasis on the Quranic text actually being transmitted or passed on orally by word of mouth. This oral transmission does not copy the actual written text. It's different than was actually uh, written down. Uh, one Muslim scholar named Al-Sayyid actually mentions today that there were seven, ten, fourteen readings. That's the typical uh, readings of a man by the name of Mujahid, Ibn Mujahid, in 285 uh, after, after uh, the Hijra. But uh, today, Ibn Sayyid said there's as many, it grew to be 20 and even 80 readings of the Quran today. In the year 1924, uh, King Fuad of Egypt printed the Quran, uh, gave an authorized Quran 
uh, to be printed in Cairo. This uh, printed copy of the Quran was not based on actual manuscripts of the Quran, but actually written on the uh, records of one of these 80 oral recitations of the Quran. The Hafs is uh, one of the original seven ways that the Quran was recited. The text is based on the Hafs way of reciting the Quranic text. And so this 1924 Cairo edition of the Quran has become the standard edition or the standard version uh, that, uh, throughout the Muslim world. And this is because there's been so many copies of this Quran uh, printed, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions, uh, and, and it's been sent throughout the world. It's found its currency in the Muslim world. It is the Arabic text found in uh, most Qurans, uh, one finds in the West as well. And an important thing to note about this text is that it was not taken from the actual manuscripts of the Quran, but it actually was a, a reconstruction of written records of oral traditions as to what this reading originally consisted. So how different this process was uh, and has been for the way that we've come to our Bibles today. Biblical scholars and uh, textual critics have actually uh, brought together the ancient manuscripts of the Bible, those 25,000 manuscripts that we discovered and 5,600 of the New Testament manuscripts and fragments that have been brought together to form uh, our text. Our text is not based off of ways that people recited uh, a text, and of course lots of variations could get in because of that, but um, recitations will differ uh, from those original words, and that's the question. How can we have one Quran written on stone tablets in heaven, but have seven, ten, and fourteen readings, a kirat, uh, or variations of ways of reciting it, or 80 different ways of reading or reciting it. Nevertheless, Muslims today think that the 1924 text from Cairo, the Quran we hold today, has not been changed from the original in heaven. So today, based on a common Muslim perception of the Uthmanic recension of the Quran, we have a book in its perfect form, uh, uh, a complete form, and this is how the Quran today is divided. The Quran as it currently exists is divided into different parts. Now, these parts are, are not, they're not real divisions you'll find in the book. They're merely external divisions which are used for recitation and reading purposes. So first it's split into what are called 30 equal parts. And in Arabic, this is called the ajza. There's uh, one part for each day of the holy month of Ramadan where Muslims fast and pray. Each day, one part is recited, uh, usually just before the breaking of the fast. Uh, the Quran is further divided into 60 azabs. There's also 240 ru'al hizb, or quarter azabs. The real divisions we find in the Quran itself begin with actually surahs. So, so the recitations are, are not real, real divisions, but the surah uh, orders are. And these, the word uh, for chapter in the Quran is called surah. Uh, the Quran is comprised of 114 surahs or chapters. Um, each surah has a number uh, in most copies of the Quran today, but Muslims generally refer to the surahs by their names. The titles of the surahs do not usually reflect the subject or the theme of the surah itself. Rather, the name of the surah often comes from a unique word in the surah. For example, uh, surah number two is called the cow, or surah number 16 is called the bee. 29 of the chapters have disconnected letters of the Arabic alphabet in their titles, and the significance of these letters are, are unclear to both Muslims and to modern secular scholars who have studied it. Uh, they will have the strange, peculiar words uh, or letters of the Quran that will proceed in, in, in certain um, articles and so on. But each uh, chapter begins with something that is called the Bismillah. The Bismillah is a phrase that states, in the name of Allah, the most merciful and the most compassionate. The surahs are arranged generally from longest to shortest, with the, uh, the second surah being the longest. Uh, they're not in a historical order, as often we find in our Bibles. 
uh, the surahs are each divided into verses, and these verses are called ayahs, or ayats, which is plural. And the total number, number of ayats amount to between 6,204 and 6,236, depending upon the scheme of how you actually count them. So these verse divisions do not always make sense of the, uh, of, with the text, and generally the verses are related to the structure of how the surah actually rhymes, how it's rhymed or how it's recited. So overall, the problem with confronting any student of the Quran is the fact that the, the book does not have a chronological sequence. The various surahs themselves are often composed of passages from both the Meccan and the Medinan periods of Muhammad's mission. The verses have a random sense of organization, and the surahs are clearly composed of many different themes and streams of thought. Let's take a look at Surah 2, for example. When we look at verses uh, 1 through 29, it actually talks about, in Surah 2, chapter 2, it says, uh, it, it actually talks about faith and disbelief. Uh, topics uh, in verse 30 through 39 are creation, Adam, and Satan. In uh, Surah 2, 40 through 86, it's biblical history, Moses, uh, biblical history, Moses. In uh, verses 87 through 103, biblical history of Jews, Jesus, and Moses. In 104 to 121, it's a polemic, Muslims, Jews, Jewish, and Christian. In 122 to 141, it's biblical history, Abraham. In 142 to 167 is Islamic identity, direction of prayer, and pilgrimage. In 168 to 203, it's juridical problems uh, with what to eat, wills, and fasting. In 204 to 214, it's salvation history. In 254 to 260, it's mixed. In 261 to 283, it's juridical problems with charity and charging of interest, usury. In 284 to 286, it's about faith. So to someone who's taking an academic look at the Quran, it seems that the Quran was edited quickly with only the most superficial concerns for its content. And this would make sense if the leaders of the Muslim community wanted to establish an authority for the Muslim community quickly after the time of Muhammad's death. And the Quran became the guide after Muhammad died as Allah's revelation. Well, that's it for this session, and we'll come back in the next session and continue on with the content of the Quran.